0: your body is an animal doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a bird birdcage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one
1: Oh, yes, we are, ladies and gentlemen, so live while you can, because it's all coming to an end. It's like a video game, pinball machine, what have you. It's going to end, right? It's just a question of how long you can string it out and how much fun you have along the way. I remember reading a book a long time ago. I was like 11 years old. I think my dad gave me a copy of um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig. I didn't comprehend 90% of what I read, but um, I plowed through it anyway because I wanted to impress my dad. And along the way, I sort of impressed myself a little bit because I knew I was punching way above my weight, intellectually speaking. Um, you know, but I stayed in the ring, uh, something my pal Joe Rogan would understand on a completely different frequency. But um, there's something about that. There's something about facing the unexpected facing something that's intimidating or frightening and, um, and sticking to it. Uh, I don't, I don't want to sound sexist, but I think there's something very uh, essential to, uh, a, a healthy development of masculinity in that process. Now I know there's something very essential to the healthy development of femininity in that process as well. Um, but of course, you know, these things express themselves in different ways. But um, I do think there's, you know, all all young men should face a snarling beast at some point in their lives. Um, because if they don't, they spend their lives running from imaginary beasts. Anyway, this is the second episode of Talking Out My Ass. And there I go. I'm already doing it. Uh, I last episode left you at high school, uh, finished high school in Cazenovia, New York, 1980, and largely because of the silliness that I told you about in that episode with uh, my ex-girlfriend dropping my sorry ass and me getting all freaked out about it and depressed and negligent of my college um, applications. I ended up going to a place called Hobart College, which um, was, in most respects, you would say it was like a safety school. Uh, it was it was one of the only schools I think I actually applied to. I, I also applied to Cornell and seemed I was getting in there, but uh, I think I mentioned that when I, I had a, an interview, an alumni interview with uh, someone who lived uh, near where I was in and I think it was in Connecticut. And, uh, and she was great. I mean, the interview was at like 7pm. And I ended up hanging out at her place till 11, or something, you know, and met her husband when he came home. And, you know, she was like, this is this guy is great, you know, and then she told me, I'm going to do everything, I'm going to write you the best recommendation ever. So I was sort of like, pretty much in the door, I think. I, I had very good SAT scores. My grades weren't great, but I'd gone to three different high schools. So I think they were willing to give me a little um, leeway for the dealing with the social awkwardness of moving all the time. But then when I got to Cornell and they sit, put me in that room with a gorgeous 28-year-old Amerasian woman, I, I was tongue-tied. I remember her saying to me, so, you know, what are you interested in? And I, I was like, Oh, you know, a little of everything, this and that. (laughs) Because, of course, I retreated into, like, cool dude, you know, posing. Um, Not the thing to do when you're getting interviewed for an Ivy League education. But anyway, so I end up at Hobart College. Now, the thing about Hobart is it's in Geneva, New York. Uh, You drive into Geneva, New York, and there's a big sign saying, Welcome to the Lake Trout Capital of the World. So that's what they're Famous for in Geneva, New York, is the lake trout in Seneca Lake, um, one of the Finger Lakes. There's nothing going on up there. That's a it's a pretty dead part of the world. Uh, it snows all fucking winter. Pretty gray. Pretty cold. Um, not a lot going on. It's uh, Geneva's at the top tip of the lake that Ithaca and Cornell University is at the bottom of. So And my best buddy Mike went to Cornell, so I used to um, go up and down that road a lot, up and down the lake. I ended up, um, well, I'll tell a story about uh, hopping a train another time, but um, I hopped a train down and and I used to hitchhike up and down that road all the time through a little town called Trumansburg on the way. Mike played in a band in Ithaca, so I used to go down there on weekends and, and hear him play and hang out. Um, But anyway, so Hobart was a small liberal arts college, still is, and I was sort of a big fish in a small pond there. I did very well. I won all these awards and um, ended up sort of hanging out more with faculty than with the students, largely because the students were pretty fucking boring. Um, uh, The faculty were, were relatively radicalized. The school was... Uh, a a site of all sorts of um, uh, rebellion in the 60s. Somebody set off a bomb in the ROTC office uh, famously in 68, 69, something like that, to protest the Vietnam War. And um, so the school was, was known as a sort of a hotbed of radicalism in the 60s. And a lot of the faculty were students who grew up thinking of it as a place like that. And then they got their PhDs and went on to teach, and they ended up teaching at this this school. So the, the faculty were like, a lot of them were very uh, radical, sort of hippie types. But the student body, because it costs so fucking much to go there, were yuppies. Uh, like, for example, uh, George Bush's, I'm talking about the older George Bush, his niece, which would be, or granddaughter, his granddaughter, which is George W. Bush's niece, was in my class. Um, And I swear to you, I swear her name was Diddle Bush. I don't know if that's the name her mother gave her or that's just the name all her yuppie friends called her, but that's what she called herself, Diddle Bush. Yuppies are not known for their sense of irony, Uh, needless to say. Another guy in the class was uh, the heir to the Spalding fortune. I don't remember what his first name was, but I remember he sort of was a legend because he showed up in class the first day of freshman year with his uh, male secretary (laughs) to take notes for him. Right. Uh, I don't think that guy made it through college. I think he drove his car into a tree at some point. Um, A friend of mine knew him pretty well, and in fact, I think she slept with him uh, sometimes, and she told me that he slept with a pistol under his pillow, and he had bags of Coke everywhere. And So it was that it was that kind of school, like rich, spoiled, lazy kids who either weren't smart enough to get into an Ivy League school or just to fucked up you know fuck ups lazy lazy stupid whatever they were they ended up at Hobart so that's where I was and so I was uh I sort of stood out because I I cared I was interested in ideas and these books that they were assigning and I was you know I would participate in conversations and so I really started to thrive there and again what's the lesson the lesson is you know you don't get what you want, uh, what's the Rolling Stone song? You can't always get what you want, but you get what you need, right? You find sometimes you get what you need. Well, here I was. I didn't get into Harvard or Cornell or Princeton or any of these other places that ideally I would have applied to and gone to and, you know, now what? Now I'd be working on fucking Wall Street or something. But because this woman dumped my ass and I was so depressed and and just, my life was so disrupted by it, I end up going to this little liberal arts college just down the road from where my parents were living at that point. And cause I didn't give a fuck, you know? And so I go there and it was like getting a private education. It was like all these professors were there just for me because nobody was listening to them except me. I, of course, you know, there were other great students as well, but we were maybe 10% of the student body were really paying any attention. Everybody else was just at a fucking country club. And, uh, so Consequently, I got all kinds of attention from faculty that I wouldn't have gotten at Princeton or Harvard or Yale. Uh, I would have been nobody there. I would have been at the bottom of the pile whereas at uh at Hobart I was at the top of the pile. So I won uh what was it? I won the freshman year I won the award for the best student in the humanities and uh I got invited out to dinner by various faculty members and got to be friends with with several of them and became very close friends with the head of the English uh and American studies departments um a guy named Eric Patterson uh who became really my closest friend in uh many ways and someone that uh that I loved uh a lot as a, as a person he was um incredibly generous with his knowledge. I know this is a guy who had graduated the top of of his class from Amherst. His father was the president of University of Massachusetts. Uh, He went to Yale, got a PhD at Yale, and then was teaching at at Hobart. And uh, when we became friends, he was in the process of getting tenure, which, as you know, means you can't be fired for practically anything uh, short of you know killing someone or maybe fucking a student or something but um he uh, and i I don't want to talk too much about him there's no way to tell this story and and hide his identity because anybody could just go to the website and find out who was the head of the english department in those days and it's a small school there there are no secrets so it kind of restricts how much I can really say, because I don't want to invade his privacy. Um, but we became very, very good friends. And um, the point being, I'm, I'm going to move. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about Hobart. Uh what happened was I was there freshman year, did very well. Sophomore year, I was chosen to be a resident advisor, which was a big honor because normally your second year, you're not going to get that position. Um, but they gave it to me. I was there. And I was sort of like, if you ever saw that show MASH uh, Hawkeye Pierce. That was, that was my model. That was who I was sort of modeling myself after like the really good student who still causes lots of trouble, but they can't fire you because you're the best surgeon, that kind of thing. I got in trouble constantly there. I did all sorts of crazy things ranging from property damage to, uh, serious drug offenses, Um, to uh, refusing to pay part of the bill for the food program because I thought it sucked so bad and that caused a big to-do and they threatened to kick me out of school and all sorts of crazy shit. But anyway, so then sophomore year, I'm, I'm raising all this hell. And somewhere in the process, I found, I was reading the student handbook for some reason. I have no idea why, but I was reading the official student handbook. And I found that, According to the rules in that handbook, I could actually graduate on time and still skip a year. There was some like I had already done the number of credits needed for the major, and then you know like the, there were like you have to take these certain core courses and da 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 and just by chance, I had done all these things you needed to do, so I looked at it and it was like, "Wow, wait a minute, I don't have to be here next year. I could just." fucking take off all i had to do my junior year was write this big essay that uh, everybody had to write the baccalaureate essay or something other than that i didn't really need to be there and my parents were paying out of pocket for this school very expensive and um so it's like well fuck it so i went to the dean and i showed him this and he said uh well this can't be right I said, well, I don't know, show me where it's not right. Well, I guess, well, I guess that's true. But really, you shouldn't do this. Well, I'm doing it. So I did it. They immediately rewrote the handbook, changed the rules so nobody else could do it. But that's why my junior year, all I had to do was write this essay. So I hung out, worked on the essay uh, for the winter, and then in like, I think, March, I decided I was going to go to Alaska because I wanted to see the last frontier, right? I wanted the experience of seeing a frontier. So um, I was at the school, but I wasn't enrolled. And I turned in the essay, um, got that approved, and then I was free to go. So the last day before I was going to leave, um, I the last thing I did at school was I went to my friend Eric's, Uh, guest lecture. There was another teacher who was teaching a class on the 60s and Eric was going to be giving a lecture about the Mansons because at Yale he had done his master's work about the Mansons and in fact he had established um, a relationship with Squeaky Frome who was in the Manson family uh, in prison and they'd exchanged letters and stuff and he'd used that in his research and so he was sort of an expert on the Mansons and the deal was that I was going to leave in March, or yeah, it must have been March, and I was going to go across the country. I had a Greyhound bus ticket from uh, Geneva, New York, till, till somewhere in, in Minnesota or, or Montana or something, and then I was going to hitchhike from there uh, to Seattle and catch the ferry that goes up the Inside Passage from Seattle north up into Canada, and then eventually to Alaska at the top of the, of the Inside Passage. Um, so I went to, to hear Eric's, uh, guest lecture in the sixties about the Mansons. Listen to him talking about the Mansons, who the Mansons were, what was going on, how they fit into the sixties and the whole counterculture revolution Their, you know, how they thought that the Beatles were sending them messages and all this crazy stuff. Um, most of you I'm sure are familiar with the Mansons. If not, you can google and and get a sense of what i'm talking about they were the evil hippies they were at the end they were when the whole free love everybody do what feels good movement sort of started to sour and of course the media latched onto them to show how evil hippies and happiness really were uh so i listened to this lecture uh said goodbye to Eric. I was going to be seeing Eric later that summer. He was The plan was he was going to fly up to Alaska after I'd been there for a while because he had to teach the rest of the term. And uh, he'd meet me in Alaska. So I was heading off into the unknown, said goodbye to him, gave him a big hug, stepped outside, and a bird shat on my head. I swear to you that is exactly what happened. A bird shat on my head. I was wearing a hat uh, that's good luck, by the way, when a bird shits on your head. And that's not the only time a bird has shit on my head. I've had birds shit on my head several times. I've had them fly into my head, in fact. Um, but another time that a bird shot on my head was similar to this in that I was leaving on a major trip, another bird shot on my head. Very strange. Anyway, so I leave, get on the bus, do this epic journey across the country Finally, weeks later, get into Seattle, staying with someone in Seattle. I can't even remember who it was. It was a friend of a friend, but I don't remember who the friend was. Somehow hooked hooked me up with these people in Seattle who were willing to let me stay at their place for a few days. The only thing I remember about them was that the woman who was living in this place, they were, they were young. They were in their 20s. They were a couple years older than me, but the woman who was living there made art By putting pieces of fish inside these plastic vacuum packed things. She had a vacuum pack. She put pieces of fish in and vacuum pack it and then like frame this thing and put it on the wall and then inside the plastic the whatever fungus was in there would start to eat the fish and start changing color and stuff. So her art was this disgusting, disintegrating pieces of fish head and stuff in this uh, vacuum-packed plastic. (laughs) So I don't know. Maybe she's a famous artist now. I hope so. Uh, Anyway, so I stayed with them for a couple of days, and then I went and got on this boat, uh, the ferry, going up to, to Alaska. Now, listen, this is a great way to travel um, because now, of course, there are people who have rooms and, you know, they have their little beds and all this stuff. But on the deck is uh, there's a roof and under the roof are those space heaters like you get in a bar sometimes when it's cold, you know, just these, um, you know, like glowing bars. Right. Uh, So that radiates down. And everybody just sets up their backpacks, their sleeping bags, their, you know, their therm rest air mattresses. And it's this big area. It's like the size of a gymnasium or something. And it's just full of people camping out. And so it's just, and it's great. There's people playing guitar, hand, hand in, you know, bottle of booze around, you know, joints, whatever really a cool fun place to be um and and people are happy and it's high energy why because they're they're heading off to Alaska right this is 1983 so a lot of people would go up to Alaska especially young people like me would go up to Alaska look for work on fishing boats or in canneries or whatever that's what i was doing if you've ever seen the film into the wild um Christopher McCandless, you know he followed basically the same path that I was on uh, a few years later. I think he he was younger than me, a couple of years younger than me um great film, great film by the way, but anyway so uh i 'm on this ferry, and by chance there 's one guy uh on my right, a guy with a beard, probably in his early forties his name 's Ed. I don't remember what his last name was, Um, and for reasons you'll soon understand, I probably wouldn't say his last name even if I could remember it, but his name was Ed. He was from Oregon. He was a fisherman and a carpenter, really nice guy, and he was fulfilling his life dream of going to Alaska and fishing. He had a, a fishing rod with him, a really nice graphite rod. He had all his flies, or I don't remember what. I'm not a fisherman, so I don't really know. But I, I know he was very proud of, of all the gear he had with him. And uh, he had some really nice weed that he would uh, grown himself, all these really nice trimmed buds. And he had them in a one of those round um, cookie tins. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so he had that cookie tin full of, crime bud. And then on the other side of me was this smoking hot blonde woman, Becca. And she was from Hawaii. And she had this big backpack, like half the size of her body, uh, just stuffed. And, um, and she had her sleeping bag and her pad and everything strapped on the outside of it. And so we ended up spending... A few days uh, and nights on the ferry. We got to know each other pretty well. Ferries cruising up. We're all getting high and watching the landscape go by. The killer whales, the bears on the shore, the bald eagles. Beautiful place to be cruising along. And Ed and Becca have a vibe going. Becca was way out of my league, and I didn't even... Yeah, there was no chance. But Ed, uh, you know, Ed was a man. Ed, you know, he had some property. He was, he was, he was a dude, and he was a real sweetheart too. And uh, he and Becca got, you know, I don't know if they they made out or I I don't remember. But I remember we got to this town, Petersburg, and the ferry stopped there for a few hours. And uh, Becca got off there because that's where her brother was. In fact, I, I guess I can mention. The mystery of Becca's backpack is uh after a couple of days, Ed and I noticed she never opened it, and she wore the same clothes every day <laughs> and so finally, one of us said to her becca what's what's up with the backpack? You never open it, you never change your clothes. what's going on and uh the secret was that the backpack was full of Hawaiian weed that she was delivering to her brother, who was a former Navy SEAL, who was a fisherman in, in, uh, in Alaska. And, uh, you know, he was selling the weed for Alaskan prices. So it was prime Hawaiian weed that she had brought in. And, uh, you know, it, he was going to make a bunch of money selling it because everything in Alaska costs like five times as much as anywhere else. Cause it's all coming in on boats and planes and stuff. So the whole economy is just um, ramped up. Anyway, so she gets off, says goodbye to Ed. It's, it's all you know, sort of sad, and she gets <laughs> off and goes down the gangplank. And we're hanging out, leaning over the edge, looking at this little town, Petersburg. And Ed says to me, "You want to check out Petersburg? I like, I know, is there anything to check out?" And he's like, "No, I mean, let's get off the ferry and just hang out here for a few days, see what it's like. Why not?" I was like, well, yeah, I don't care, but why not? Do you want to? We can, because, you know, you can get on and off the ferry however you want. So, all right, we got our stuff together and we got off. Of course, Ed was, you know, chasing after Becca. He was hoping there'd be a second part to that. But so we get off, we walk around the town and we find the campground. Now, the thing about a lot of Alaska is it's built on muskeg, which is, which, is like this spongy, mossy stuff that grows on top of the permafrost. The permafrost is the ground is frozen all year round. It, it never actually thaws out in the summer. Consequently, there's nowhere for the water to run off because it's just a layer of ice, you know, a foot under under the surface there. So you get this really spongy, wet, stuff that that's just everywhere so the campground was built on stilts and it was all wood planking uh so there was like all these raised wooden walkways to platforms where you could set up your tent and then down at the bottom there was like a a communal area with a big um, like a shelter and cooking fire and bathrooms and stuff like that and uh, so we found this place and we set up our tents and uh, we hung out there for a few days. As far as I, I don't think, uh, I remember Ed going and hunting for her and asking around, but I don't think he even found where her brother lived. I, I don't think there was anything ever came of that. But so we're hanging out in Petersburg and, um, and one night I remember we're hanging out in I think it was in Ed's tent. He had a big tent. I had like a small dome tent, but he had a bigger tent. We were in there hanging out and, you know, he would roll up some a doobie or something from this weed he had. And then he took the the lid of that cookie tin and he had some rum and he would put rum in and then a little lime juice and sort of swirl it around like he was panning for gold, you know, and then we'd uh, sip the rum from the edge of the cookie tin. So it was nice because then at the end you'd close it up again and you'd have this mixture of the smell of weed and rum and lime juice. And it's kind of a nice mixture. Anyway, we're hanging out. I had turned Ed on to Bach um, because, now remember, I'm a pedantic little intellectual fuck. All right. At this time, I I'd won all these awards at school. I was friends with the faculty. I was everybody's favorite student. I was writing all these brilliant essays and blah blah blah. And um, in fact, I was another friend uh, who I met through Eric was a guy named Andrew Harvey, who was the youngest person to ever be a full professor at Oxford. Now, get your wrap your head around that. That's like since twelve sixty or whenever Oxford was founded. This guy was a genius. And uh, between Eric and Andrew and the support of other professors, I was on the track to go go somewhere and get a PhD. Some, you know, it, Now it would be Princeton or Yale or Oxford or somewhere. Get a PhD uh, in literature and be teaching at some prestigious college or university by the time I was 30. That's the track I was on, right? And um, so I was... My backpack was full of books. I had, you know, D.H. Lawrence's collected uh, poetry. I had uh, Joseph Conrad, and uh, I had also uh, Walt Whitman. I had all this stuff. Nietzsche poetry. Half the weight in my backpack was probably books. And I had my Walkman with cassettes and little speakers and all that. And a lot of the music I had was classical music, especially uh, Mahler and Bach. So I turned uh, Ed on to Bach. Which, uh, he loved and that really, uh, touched him. I remember because, yeah, he was a pretty humble guy. He, he, I don't think he'd ever gone to university. He was, um, uh, like I said, he's a carpenter and, uh, but very smart and, uh, very cool. And, you know, one night we got high and I put on some Bach and it just blew his mind. And, you know, it was one of those moments where it was like, wow, classical music can be really, really good, you know? And, uh. I think I think out of gratitude for that really he looked at me and he said Chris I trust you. And I said thanks man. He said I'm going to tell you a story I haven't told anyone ever before. I said all right. So here's Ed's story. In the late 60s he's a teenager And he was a hippie and he had problems with his parents and, you know, like a typical situation. His parents lived, I think they lived in Oregon or maybe Washington State. And um, so he took off one day, had a fight with his father, whatever, took off and was hitchhiking down to uh, San Francisco. And he gets picked up by these guys in a van and they're headed to L.A. And uh, by the time they got to San Francisco, they'd become friends and they'd invited Ed to come along with them. So they head down to L.A. And one of the guys knew someone who knew someone and, you know, how these things work. And so there was a a, a ranch that they had heard about in Topanga, which is just north of L.A., along the coast, Topanga Canyon. And... uh so they went to this ranch, and it was a movie ranch where they, they filmed westerns. And the guy who was taking care of it, they weren't filming anything there at the time, and the guy who was taking care of it was this old black blind dude. And uh, so there were all these hippies living there. And a- any time the blind dude got sort of nervous about hey there are too many people around here what's going on you guys have to leave one of the women gave him a blowjob and that quieted him down for a while so Ed and these dudes show up there and they're hanging out and uh, it's a scene uh, lots of fucking going on and drugs and you know hardcore hippie scene but after a few days Ed wasn't into it for one reason or another and he got his stuff and he took off. And in fact he took off in the middle of the night because there was a bad vibe with uh, with some of the people there. I don't remember the details, but I remember he it was like, Yeah, hey, I gotta get out of here and he just sort of grabbed grabbed his stuff and took off in the middle of the night. So uh he hitched back up north And got to his parents' house a few days later. And um, he was walking up the driveway. And they saw him from the window. And his father got in the car, drove down to the end of the driveway and said, You're not welcome here. We never want to see you again. And he drove back up. And had no idea. They thought, well, we had a fight. But that was, you know, two weeks ago. So he went to a friend's place and the friend said to him, Dude, what the fuck is wrong with you? And he said, I don't know, what are you talking about? It's like, dude, you fucking robbed your own parents' house? Ed said, What are you talking about? I didn't rob my parents' house. He said, Well, somebody robbed your parents' house. They trashed the place, they stole the TV, they stole this, stole that, and they found your t-shirt lying on the kitchen floor and it was the shirt that you were wearing when you left so they know it was you it's like what i I didn't rob my parents house i don't know i've i've i don't know there's a mistake so he calls the cops this is a thursday calls the cops tells them the story don't know what happened i didn't rob my parents house i don't know what's going on and the cops say All right, well, listen, it's really busy today. Um, We're not going to be able to get to you till Sunday. Why don't you come in on Sunday and we'll talk about this? Strange. Okay, fine. So what happened? They traced the call. They tailed him from Thursday till Sunday. They were following him. Here's the story. What happened was those people he was living with, for a few days in Topanga, was the Manson family. While he was there, they went out and killed Sharon Tate and uh, the La Blanquiata people. That was the helter-skelter. If you Google Mansons, that's what you're going to see roman polanski's pregnant wife they killed her and they wrote helter skelter on the refrigerator because they thought the beatles were sending them messages and they were triggering the uprising of the blacks against the whites funny for a bunch of white hippies to think that they were the the uh the trigger of black rebellion but that's what they thought they thought that the song uh Blackbird Singing in the Dead of Night was the Beatles telling the, the black Americans to prepare for revolution and that they would send them the message through the Mansons when it was time to, to arise. Anyway, they were the Mansons. They went out. They killed all these people. That night, Ed disappeared. They thought Ed knew what they had done. So they were going to track him down and kill him before he told anybody. They knew where he lived. I don't, I don't remember how, if they found ID or whatever. And they went to his parents' house. They didn't find anyone home. They didn't find Ed, so they trashed the place and robbed it. Ed had left the T-shirt in Topanga Canyon. They had it with them. They threw it on the floor to make it look like he had done it. So that's what's Ed's, that was Ed's story. Ed tells me that story. He says, I've never told anyone this story. Because the Mansons are so intense. The whole feeling about the Mansons is so intense that if anyone knew that I had anything to do with them, I'd get kicked out of town. I nobody, no woman would see me. I'm a, I wouldn't be allowed to, to even have a job. It would, it, you know, I can't defend myself. And it turns out, he says, I'm in all those fucking books about the Mansons. They mentioned me as being a member of the Manson family, but I wasn't. I was just some fucking hitchhiker who spent a couple of nights there. And this is, this is the true story. Holy shit. All right, so the next day I go into town in Petersburg and I call my buddy Eric. Remember Eric, who's teaching at Hobart, who the last thing I had done when I, before I left Hobart was to go to his class on the Mansons. He's an expert. So I'm talking to Eric and he's saying, well, how's Alaska? What's going on? How is it? Well, uh, I can't wait to hear. And I said, oh, it's great, man. I met this great guy. His name's Ed, whatever, whatever his last name was. And uh, we've been uh, hanging out, and he's he's a very interesting guy. And Eric says, oh, that's funny. There was a guy with that same name who lived with the Mansons. I say, yeah, that's him. <laughs> so that's my first, you know, sort of uh, hint of the adventures that are awaiting me on there. Uh, and also I like, the you know, the circular, uh, the way these things reconnect, you know, the whole Manson thing. So... Appendage to this, sort of uh, an addendum. Um, Ed took me fishing. A couple of days later, we went fishing, and it was spectacular. I still remember we were in this this inlet, and it was sort of dusk, and so the the pine trees across the inlet were really dark. And there were so many bald eagles around. It was um, mating season, and bald eagles are chasing each other, flying through the trees. They're huge. I mean, six-foot wingspans, massive. And they make this bizarre noise when they're chasing each other around, you know, mating, courtship behavior. Um, And across the inlet, you could see whenever a a bald eagle came in to land and it flared its tail feathers, it popped like a flashbulb against those dark trees, these pops of just white flashes every time an eagle was landing. Ed cast, his first cast in Alaska, his dream, go to Alaska and go fishing. First cast, he caught a salmon, big, big salmon, two and a half feet long probably. Unbelievable. He was singing and dancing, jumping up and down. He was so fucking happy, I remember. And he was a stickler. He never wanted to deal with any cops or anybody because, of course, if they run his name, you know, all this weird shit comes up and he's got a real complicated life. So, even though we were in Alaska in the middle of nowhere, he wouldn't let me cast because I didn't have a license. He, you know, he was apologetic. He would have been happy to let me, uh, you know, cast a line in there, but uh, without a license, he wasn't going to risk it. So, and that was fine. I was just hanging out with him. So, first cast in Alaska, he catches a big, beautiful salmon, reels it in, bashes its head against the rocks, which freaked me out, because I was a vegetarian at this point, Uh, and I remember Ed had a good laugh at that, you know, I was this vegetarian pansy on my way up to, uh, you know, commercial fish or or gut fish or whatever for the summer, and, and I couldn't. Bash a salmon's head against the rocks. Anyway, after a few more minutes, he caught another one, two big, beautiful fish. And we took them back to the campsite. And there were another, you know, there were probably another seven or eight guys there camping out. And uh, and Ed announced that uh, he had food for everybody that night. And he gutted the fish down at the water. And, uh, he had some onions. He sliced the onions and, uh, some lemon slices and some garlic and some olive oil. And, you know, you put all that stuff like in where the guts are. And then he wrapped it up in foil and he put the two fish in the fire and let them cook for a while. And meanwhile, everyone's hanging out, drinking and smoking and talking and having a great time. And, uh, Then he takes the fish out. It smells fantastic, even though, remember, I'm a vegetarian, so I don't have any, but uh, everybody else was chowing down on this fish. And uh, Ed had the smaller one for himself, and he gave the the big one uh, to everybody else. And there's plenty for everybody. (laughs) So it's getting dark now. It's quite dark, and um, there's light from the fire it's a big fire and I'm sitting up on a bench like he's down on the the bench of a picnic table and I think I was up on the table itself sitting up on the table and everybody's having a great time and Ed's you know feeling at the top of the world he's provided for all these guys and you know he's the fisherman and he's got his gear and it's salmon it's Alaska it's great and everyone's really enjoying the fish and Something catches my eye and, you know, I'm kind of drunk and stoned and, but something catches my eye and I look over Ed's shoulder, I'm looking at his fish and I see this movement and I look more closely. I say, Ed, give me, let me see that fish. There are hundreds of tiny white worms moving like cilia in the center of this salmon. And of course for a second I thought I shouldn't tell him. This is the best night of his fucking life. I shouldn't tell him he's been eating these fucking worms. But he saw the look on my face. He took the fish back. He looked at that looked at it. Immediately stuck his fingers down his throat tried to puke. Hundreds of little thread-like white worms that hadn't been killed in the fire. So they moved to the center of the fish and they were just waving like tiny hairs. And he'd already eaten half the fish. Tried to puke, couldn't puke. Grabbed a bottle of tequila somebody had and just chugged it. Half a bottle of tequila, straight down. The other fish was fine. Ruined the party, needless to say. The next day he went into town uh, to a doctor and the doctor said, ah, yeah, it's no big deal. It's, I don't know what it was, but, uh yeah, it's probably no big deal. So two of the guys that were there that night were um, Rob and Brent and, um, Ed wanted to hang out in Petersburg, and and I guess he still wanted to chase after Becca a bit, but I was going north further. And uh, so I left the next day with Rob and Brent, and uh, I'll talk about what happened with those two in the next episode. But um, after the whole trip was over and I was back at college, uh, I... I sent a letter to Ed cause I had his, he, he had given me his address. I sent a letter asking how he was and he wrote back and he said that, um, uh, he started shitting blood a couple days after that and had to be flown, uh, by emergency medical helicopter to Seattle had had surgery, uh, emergency surgery and, um, He'd been in the hospital for a couple of months. And he was back home now, but he still couldn't work. And the doctors really didn't know what to do. And um, I wrote to him a couple times after that and never heard from him again.
0: He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. headstone I don't want to give the end away but we're gonna die one day your body is an mood, doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play You wanna be free, say what you wanna feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground